Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is someone I've gotten to know really well over the years from our uh, work at Advertising Week Europe in London. And she's been on stage with us many times. I've had a chance to catch up with her um, a little bit earlier today. So I think, Farah, we're all caught up. Um, and our guest today is the editor-in-chief of LUK, literally the world's biggest style magazine brand. And that's quite a statement. And I'm talking, of course, about Farah Store. So welcome, Farah. Thanks for having me, Matt. And uh, love having you. I want to start in uh, sort of two places at once. And when I think about you, you're a hybrid. I'm going to use a contemporary, often overused word, but I see you as a hybrid in two ways. You're a hybrid as a person and you're a hybrid in that you have straddled sort of the halcyon days of the magazine industry. And then I don't want to say the non-halcyon days, but I want to say the evolution as the business has evolved in the last 10 years in particular and is finding its place in the new world order of media. And you have really bridged that gap, I would say, better than anyone in keeping your finger on the pulse and figuring out not only from a content vantage point, but from a sort of where you fit in the broader conversation, anything and everything that you touch, you find a way to keep it relevant, keep it fresh, keep it interesting and engage the audience. And that's all you. Um, but I want to start with your unique background, which we've talked about before. You're a daughter of uh, parents who are mixed. Um, and we are in an era of incredibly challenging conversations around racism. I'm sure you've been following what's been happening, you know, on this side of the Atlantic, absolutely severe. Um, and arguably since the 60s, the toughest time that we have had as America really comes to a reckoning with itself. Um, but I'd love to reflect on your upbringing, talk about your parents and how the unique set of ingredients that make you came together and how it shaped you? Well, yeah, I suppose just for clarity, um, yeah, you're right. So my, my mother is um, white, English, Irish descent. My father is from Pakistan. So sort of came to the UK when he was 17. And so as a consequence, I guess my parents were one of the first sort of mixed race couples, certainly, um, where I was growing up, I grew up in Salford in Manchester. Um, it's a pretty tough part of, of the UK, still is. Um, you know, I was lucky, grew up in a very nice place, but but it was, but I saw um I saw sort of what um hardship looked like around me. So from a I think growing up as a as um product of a of a mixed marriage in the 80s in Salford, you kind of didn't talk about it actually um because me and my siblings look we're kind of indecipherable in a way people don't know if we're Spanish or Middle Eastern certainly I don't think when you look at me very quickly you would know that I was of Pakistani descent so growing up in the 80s when there there was a lot of racism around I mean you used to see sort of the words Paki scrawled around um, 
the last thing you wanted to be known for was that your father was Pakistani. So I didn't really talk about it. And actually, you know, I, I feel really ashamed about it now as a grown up, but people just assumed I was European and I never really changed that mindset because I suppose as a young woman, I was worried about what people would say. And I remember when um, I think I was about 10 and my mum always used to do the school pick up and drop off. So nobody had ever seen my father. And by the way, I loved my father so much, an amazing dad, but nobody had ever seen him. And I had a birthday party one year and it was the first time I had ever had it. I was quite nervous about it. And my dad was, um, decided he was going to pick up some of the school kids and my mum was going to pick up some of them. And it was the first time that my peers, so these are only kids of about 10, saw my dad. And I remember they, they didn't know that I had seen this, but one of the girls who I was hugely impressed by let out a real gasp when she saw my dad. And I remember her saying to, to the, the girl with her, I think her name was Rachel, oh my God, is that really far as far as father? And, and this lovely girl, Rachel, just sort of went, shh. And so I took that as a sort of bad thing, but of course it wasn't. It was that people were just surprised. Now, of course, the older I've got, I've become so proud of being mixed heritage. But I think when you're little and there's nobody around who is is the same as you, it was very hard. It, it, it was hard. And um, yeah, I didn't really speak about it that much, if I'm completely honest. And somewhere this incredible work ethic evolved. I want to talk about, you know, when you started at Women in Home, you were only 23 years old. But I'm going to guess that that was not your first job, that you worked as a teenager and even while perhaps while you were at school. Is that uh, instinct that I'm having? Is that right or wrong? Yeah, always worked. Although, as my sister was laughing the other day, she was talking about how she flipped burgers and my brother flipped burgers. And, I, you know, I was working from a, the minute I could at, at 16, but I was very particular. So I was a waitress for about two minutes. And then I was like, actually, I'd much rather work in a fancy designer clothes shop. So actually, I worked all, all through from 16 right up to exactly woman and home. But I was very canny about finding things that I love doing. It was never about the money. You know, I was just happy to fold jumpers in Jigsaw, which is a very sort of um, posh brand, particularly for a 16 year old. So it was it was never about the money for me. It was about finding a job that I loved and was ob obsessional about. So but you are right. Yes, I've always worked and I thrive off working, it, you know, to some degree. You know, the problem with me, perhaps, and certainly in the last couple of years, I've, I've figured it out a bit more work has been sort of what keeps me going and, and because I know I'm quite obsessional I sometimes have to sort of pull myself back from it in fact yeah no I sadly or happily I have the same affliction right. and and I and I go back in my head all the time and the stories always come up that I remember all the jobs that I had as a teenager and I think to a large degree those shaped me and I lament today, you know, my kids are now 26 and 23 and they are in the majority of young people, at least in America, the kids don't work anymore. They might do a babysitting job here and there, but for the most part, a lot of them don't work overall. And a lot of jobs that I used to do as a kid are now jobs that adults do. 
Um, and I think we're losing something with young people not getting that work experience, whatever they're doing, whether they're flipping burgers or, you know, folding jumpers at Jigsaw. Yeah, I think I was thinking that you're absolutely right. The other day I was in because um, because the cafes have just opened here and all the wait staff, you're absolutely right, were much older. And uh, rightly or wrongly, you do wonder, don't you? I mean, most sorts of 16 year olds I know and some of them work, by the way. But of course, they want to be influencers. And actually, you know, it's much I'm not saying it's easier, but I think the um, desire to earn money um, they want to do it in a slightly different way. And I don't think for me, it was very exciting, probably the same as you being a waitress or working in a shoe shop was so exciting. And it just doesn't have that anymore. And I don't know what you lose. I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't know what you lose, actually. But I think because, you know, some of these these young influencers, they work really, really hard. Um, but but yeah, I, I think you are right that those early jobs you have really do play an integral part in, in who you go on to be, particularly in the workplace. Yeah. And they, and they create a lot, certainly in my case, a lifetime of stories. So, so we, we touched briefly, but let's now go to first real job in the adult world, let's call it, and working at women in home. And that started uh, a streak for you where you worked at some incredible brands at good housekeeping and glamor and Marie Claire, but take us back to that very first day, that very first gig at Women in Home. What do you remember from those days? Oh, wow. I mean, so much, mainly that I was out of my depth. Everyone felt so confident and so extroverted. And, and I'm sort of naturally, believe it or not, not an extrovert, I'm very introverted. So I was very scared, I was very nervous. Um, it was a huge office, you know, it was the days of the editor at the time, Sue James. She was a real, she was a kind of celebrity, um, certainly in, in for that market. She had the glass office, you know, people knocked on her door and asked her if she wanted to tea and biscuits. So it, there was a sort of real hierarchy and, and I could see what being an editor very clearly looked like. She was hugely respected. She was feared as well. Um, so I was just very much a sort of fish out of water in a way. And I just wanted to, I just desperately wanted to make an impression. And for me, I knew making an impression would never be in a meeting, in a big public meeting. I was never going to be the person that sort of stood up and presented really well, it just wasn't my style. So I did it with work. I just, you know, made sure I worked every single hour that I could. And I thought that was how... I could make the right impression but it was a whole new world to me and um yeah I loved it I, I found I, I sort of found my place I found I was very lucky I found what I loved doing very early on and that job at Woman and Home was in many ways not very far removed from what I'm doing now though it might look like on paper my job was to to interview women and it was to interview women they were all in their sort of 50s and 60s and most of them were divorcees and they sort of, you know, their, their, their partner had had an affair with the PA and they were starting their own business and living the dream. But what it did was, even though my life was completely removed from theirs, it made me realise that no matter the age of the person or the demographic, that everybody had an amazing story. And also, it just made me fascinated with women and what makes women tick. 
um, which really is is the thing that's underlined my entire career, really. You know, you may say I work on a fashion magazine. It's called L. It's about women. Yeah, no, I don't know anybody who has their finger on the pulse better than you do. And and I can see now as we're, you know, going through your story, you know, going back to those early days, working as a 16 year old up to, you know, your first gig in the business, you can see how that all kind of comes together. That first job was give or take, I'm going to say about 2001. Does that sound about right? That sounds vaguely about right. Yeah. And that was before all the things that dominate our industry now were around, right? The iPhone was 2006. Uh, Facebook, uh, I think in 2001, Zuckerberg was still in high school. Uh, and, you know, YouTube was 2007. All the other things that we talk about incessantly today, mostly technology driven, uh, were not lesser subjects than they weren't subjects at all. Yeah. And that was still what we could call, and uh, I used the expression before, so we'll stay with it, the halcyon days of the magazine industry. Talk about the sexiness of the business and the cultural dominance and influence that magazines had then. And you were there sort of, uh, if it was a football match, sort of in the 80 some odd minute of, <laughs> of that period for magazines. Yeah. I, you see, I actually always think that I was on the it was changing already. I mean, I had a sister who came before me. She, she was a solicitor, changed jobs, got into magazines in the 90s. So, and she, and, and my, my husband was in the magazine in the 90s and worked at Loaded and, you know, so, so I heard all of those stories actually of the true Halcyon days. I mean, actually, I, I imagine the 80s were really, me and my husband often say, if we were journalists back in the 80s, can you imagine? We'd have the huge uh, townhouse in Islington and, and, and the town car. Um, so I sort of feel like the 80s was it. The 90s, because of my sister, I sort of vicariously got a sense of, Jesus Christ, the, these jobs are unbelievable. I mean, I remember it loaded they used to, I can't remember what it's called but it was like a, a wheel on on the um on the wall and they used to twist the wheel and it had a map of the world and wherever it landed on they they flew to that place and they came up with a story so I was you're absolutely right in that I was there when they were still hugely influential the print product that is and it was very pure um but I was still aware that it had changed from the sort of decades before me but yeah I mean you know they, I mean, they still do, of course, you know, these brands still exert huge influence, but it was much purer in a way. Um, and actually just the sense that you worked on a magazine, a glossy magazine, it had huge cultural cachet. And, you know, even like I said about Sue, she wasn't just an editor, she was a kind of celebrity. You know, she'd walk into a room and, and, and you know, rooms would go silent and that's certainly never been my experience uh, whilst I've been an editor, but maybe I, I'm too approachable. Maybe that's my own problem. No. But yeah, it, it was, um, they were just really important and they were at the centre of things. Um, and I think brands still are now, but you've really got to insert yourself in them. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly gotten a lot harder. So I, I love to talk about um, some of the great minds who, people are, you know, guests on the show come across either as a journalist, folks that you interviewed or covered or, or folks that you worked for in that sort of pre period before 
that seminal launch of women's health, you know, you went through, again, we touched on it, but good housekeeping and Eve and glamor and Marie Claire, um, all before you launched women's health as a very young woman, you're still young. You were really young then reflecting back on that period, Farah, who are some of the great minds who come to mind as you look back on that sort of first quarter, if you will, of your career? Well, I mean, I, re- I actually, when people go, I had a mentor, I actually found my mentors when I became an editor, didn't really have them uh, in the early stage um, because I, I was never, um, the truth is I sometimes think, how did I become an editor? Because I was never sort of the bright spark on the magazine. I just kind of, I was okay. I was okay. Um, so I worked with some brilliant people. I mean, Lindsay Nicholson, who was the editor of Good Housekeeping, that was my second job. And actually she was amazing because she was really feared because she had this incredible benchmark for excellence. And she, I didn't think she knew who I was, but actually she, um, she paid very close attention to my career without me almost realizing. So we didn't have much, much interaction, but I would get good stories. And, and behind the scenes, I, I sort of heard that she would ask about me and she was sort of checking in in her own way. For me, she was sort of a true leader. She was a real visionary. She was terrifying but she had this obsession with excellence, which um, lit something inside me. And actually, when I went to edit Women's Health, probably my first proper mentor. So she was a mentor. She probably wouldn't realize it, but she was. She was definitely somebody I looked up to. When I edited Women's Health and I sort of got a real mentor was a chap called Morgan Reese, who was a um, Sort of, I think he'd won like more awards than any other magazine editor. And again, he was incredibly, um, he was tough on me, but he was kind as well. And I remember what it is that I suppose connected with him. It was the same thing that had connected with Lindsay Nicholson. And interestingly, it turns out they, they actually got on very well. It was this obsession with excellence. It can always be better. It's never finished. Um, so those two people stand out. I mean, look, I had I had some other wonderful people. I mean, Sarah Kramer was a uh, she was the editor in chief of Eve, and she showed me what a compassionate boss looked like. Joe Elvin showed me um, what a sort of fun and 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 I mean, brilliant editor editor could look like. I think what I was um, interesting. I didn't realize it at the time, but I I moved jobs every eighteen months, and I did it really just to earn more money. But actually what, and of course people tell you not to do that, it's a really bad idea. But for me, it was brilliant because I got to see all these different types of leaders and some were great, but some were truly memorable. So I think Morgan and and Lindsay, um, divisive editors, by the way, you know, they're not the editors that everybody will go, oh, aren't they lovely? They're the editors that people will describe as tough. And I think that that's because of this obsession with, with excellence. Fantastic. And you get tabs to launch. And I think this is sort of the rocket ship moment in your career. You get tabbed to launch the UK edition of Women's Health. How did that whole thing happen? Well, it was, I had just moved back from Australia. I'd been there for a couple of years with my husband. 
and I was kind of freelance really I, I was sort of a little bit aimless and I had got a job as a deputy editor on a health magazine it was a pretty good job uh, it was four days a week five days salary uh, and it was pretty easy and then I caught wind as these things unfortunately do happen you know I heard through someone of someone that they were launching women's health and I knew about women's health because I'd just come back from Australia where it was hugely successful and actually I was at Marie Claire in Australia women's health was the real threat there so I was told that it was launching and this sort of friend of a friend said look you should throw your hat in the ring you know why not and I did and lo and behold I went for the interview and I pretty much got offered the job. <laughs> no, I don't think it was, it may have been the same day, it may have been the next day, but I was offered the job very, very quickly. It was Morgan, of course, who interviewed me. Um, and, and another chap, actually, who I should say, another chap, the publisher, Alan Williams, another great mentor, another brilliant boss. Um, they interviewed me and, and yeah, I got the job really quickly. And I was like, well, this is really weird. Um, and of course, Morgan, I think, consequently said he just saw something in me. And actually, you know, I think, Sometimes you just see something in an individual. It was probably he knew that I was pretty tough and I worked really hard. And, and of course, what had happened with women's health, which I didn't realise till much later, was they had already had an editor and that editor had walked out for reasons, you know, who knows. But when I took on the job of women's health, it was just me and it was two other members of staff. And it was very much a, a gauntlet was thrown down, which was, look, it's the worst time really in history to launch a magazine. It was 2012. Uh, magazines were closing. I think Eve had just closed. Um, and they said, we need to sell 100,000 copies from issue one. And if we don't, we probably need to think about whether we're going to launch this thing properly, whether we'll go to an issue two. And so it was left to me and these two um, and we were all kind of freelance, really. These two others, my, my picture director, Emily Murphy and, and Lewis Chan, my art director, we just had to figure it out. And, and of course, we had Morgan there, but we hardly had any money. We had six weeks and, and there was Christmas as well. And we had to kind of come up with a, a new template for a health magazine. And, and I, I honestly, to this day, because of those constraints that we had to work with, we just had to get really hustly. We had to be really canny. We didn't have big sort of luxurious teams, you know, to sort of sit and chew the fat on ideas. So the ideas ended up being quite risque um, because they were all based on gut instinct that, hey, this is a good idea. I think if if we'd have shown the idea to more than five people, they would have gone, you're mad to do things like this. You know, we use quite sort of shocking imagery in it. Um, and lo and behold, you know, the magazine went on to be really successful because I think of all those ingredients, which was, it was a bit controversial. It was risky, certainly for a health magazine. The, the tone of voice was um, not anarchic, that's not the right word, but it was it was irreverent. And I always say, I've never been a massive fan of sort of having this type of language and world just for women. I always say it should just appeal to any gender. Um, and I always wanted to work on men's magazines. So, so, and I always used to find the tone on men's magazines, that sort of irreverence, we sort of needed it more in women's magazines. Um, and, and yeah, it, it became a big success, but it probably shouldn't have been in many ways, I think. Well, but it speaks to you and you're someone who has been first in a lot of places, spaces perhaps others are thinking about, but afraid to go. And I think that manifested itself really brilliantly 
um, when you became editor of the UK edition of Cosmopolitan about three years later. And I remember vividly the stories around your then unheard of decision to put a plus size model, Tess Holiday, on the front cover. That was a very, very big move at a time before a lot of people were making big moves like that. Yeah, and, and I think I think the truth is because of women's health and all the sort of risks we took, because we didn't really have any fallback, when we put Tess on the cover, yes, I thought it would be a surprise to people, but I I I didn't think it would be it would create the conversation that it did. But I suppose I'm just very good because of the women's health training, really three years of going with my gut instinct, which was what feels like the right thing to do, what feels like the thing to shake up this very stale world, because women's health is the same. I felt that the health magazine world was really stale, really boring. You know, it was like put lavender salts in your bath. Um, So I'm always interested in shaking things up. And we definitely knew the image of Tess Wood, although certainly not really to the extent it did. But I don't think about, possibly I should, but when we did Tess, I was just filled with such joy, mainly because actually her story, and it wasn't really to do with her body. I was really interested in her story as an individual who'd come from sort of a trailer park and, and had made it in spite of that. Um, but my interest, and, and we, we do this at Elle, is just to create dialogue and, and, and go into spaces that people don't, for whatever reason, actually, um and I think yeah that's what the test cover did but it just didn't seem shocking to me actually when we put it on the cover there was not a single minute where we went are we going to get pushed back or what are people going to think it just it literally wasn't on my radar and I think when I look back now it's probably because since women's health that's kind of what my career has been like really yeah no that that disruptive and we'll get to another word that became the focus of a wonderful book that you wrote the discomfort zone but that combination of being disruptive and allowing yourself and others to be uncomfortable i think those are really you know seminal ingredients in in your success at the same time you're having this editorial success going from women's health to cosmopolitan uk the business around you is starting to change, uh, the bricks are starting to fall off or chip away off the building. Talk about what that was like. Clearly, you know, you're not insulated from what happens on the business side and how that impacted you, decisions that you made, and what did you see around you as you were staying focused on, you know, putting out a world-class product, but the business around you, above you, below, beneath you, was changing pretty rapidly by then. Yeah, I think the first thing that I saw, because this is almost 10 years, uh, no, it's about seven years now, is a lot of people when those, um, as you very eloquently put it, when those bricks started falling, a lot of people jumping ship very quickly and going, I need a career change. You know, the end is nigh, we need to get out. And I didn't feel that was right, but I saw a lot of amazing people leave the industry um of their own volition they, they they just weren't prepared for what was coming um and I think actually probably it was a lot of people who had been there in the true halcyon days actually uh, when the bricks started to shake they were like Mm-mm, um we're not in it for this anymore 
Um, for me, of course, because I've only really, certainly as an editor, known things to be difficult, it didn't really shake me. But of course, Matt, there's an awareness that things are not what they used to be. And, you know, you start to talk about print in certain circles and people sort of roll their eyes and go, well, the future's digital. And I never, I suppose I'm very good at keeping my head. And also I try and, if I can, it's very difficult, of course, but I try and, um, I don't have, how can I put it? I don't have a lot of, uh, <laughs> I don't have a huge amount of friends, um, not because I'm not friendly, but, but, but in the workspace, I kind of, you know, I keep out of the gossip and the sort of um, the, the noise. And actually, I think that's quite good because actually, I think sometimes if you listen too much to the noise, it can frighten you. So when that was happening and the bricks were falling, I was just like, look, the thing is, and I was at Cosmo, of course, then, Cosmo is still a hugely influential brand. And just because we're not a digital first, in some ways, it should make us even more successful because we were we were a celebrity brand first. What we have is audience. Um, and at the time, a lot of these startups, what they craved was a loyal audience. And that's what a brand like Cosmo had. So my big thing was like, well, look, just how do we keep people interested across all our platforms? Well, how you keep them interested is, well, certainly this was my, my sort of um, theory, was you cut through the noise again. And, and so it all goes back for me for those same things, which is look in the places no one else is looking to have conversations no one's having, create content that no one else is doing. So for Cosmo, for example, that meant, you know, we didn't, um, we look for stories that even the sort of national papers were not running. Certainly no one online was running. What I wanted to show, I suppose, is when all these sorts of emerging digital brands were were sort of coming to the fore, I wanted to show why a brand like Cosmo really mattered. And that actually, if you were interested in excellence and, and quality journalism, then you stick, you stick with something like Cosmo. And I, and I still believe that, by the way. Um, but yeah, and, and so what I did is, in some ways, I went almost more old school in that sense. When everyone was sort of doing listicles, I said, that's not what we do. We do long form investigative journalism on the culture of young women, what is happening. Um, we use social media to our massive advantage. I mean, all of our sort of award winning feature ideas came from stories we found on Instagram looking for patterns in young women's behaviors. You know, we did a massive story on, on, on all these young women who were um, entrepreneurial escorts, they call themselves going to Dubai. And we found these stories through social media. So I never saw digital and printing conflict. I actually thought there was a space where they could bounce off one another. Um, and actually, if we did it right, all we needed to do was ignite our brand, actually. Yeah, I, I happen to agree with your take. And I think there's still a very important place for proper journalism and for long form journalism in particular. Uh, a lot of what you were covering sort of presaged, in a sense, the latest iteration, and I think by far the most powerful one, of female empowerment. And we've seen various iterations of this over, you know, the centuries. Uh, but something has happened around the conversation 
of empowerment, of gender equality, certainly there's a broader conversation in both of our countries around diversity and inclusion. Um, and while I think there's much, much uh, more to be done with the colors of the rainbow, on gender, there have been a lot of breakthroughs for women. You presaged a lot of that and have had a very unique perspective, Farah, on the rise of women in business and culture and influence. We all know, of course, in household spending, women have long been the most influential voice, influential gender. But I'd love to get your perspective on sort of the modern era, let's call it the last seven, eight, nine years, and what you've observed as women have taken a much more dominant role in decision-making, not only on the editorial side and in front of the camera, if you will, but also behind the camera? Well, I do come at it from a slightly different angle. I mean, you have to remember that I probably subconsciously, deliberately went into into an industry, glossy magazines, where women by and large way outnumber men, probably out-earn men. Um, they have all the top jobs. So that I do not think that was by chance that I chose that. So I have been really lucky in that I've only ever really seen women at the top. Um, and I know what it looks like. I think, it, it, I think it, it, it's a brilliant thing. However, and this is something that I've always, and some people raise sort of raise their eyebrows at this. What I have done, and, and I suppose what I, I always become fearful of is that with the sort of rise of, of, of women and, and gender equality, of course, of course, um, it's amazing. Um, but, but, but I suppose where I have always had slight conflict is that what I've never felt is that when one group rises, you have to push the other group down. And so... Uh, what I've never got involved with is sort of the denigration of men, actually, uh, as women have ascended quite rightly and, and long overdue. I've always wondered about, because not so much now, but a couple of years ago, there was a lot of conversations about how dreadful men were and there were this. And, you know, every conversation I seemed to have was about terrible misogynists. And I always try, mainly because I think it's a, it's a healthy mindset, to kind of think, you know, if I never got a job, it's not because the guy behind the desk was a misogynist. I tend to think, I mean, they may have been, but what I tend to think, which I think is slightly, it will stop you going mad, is I tend to think, well, maybe I wasn't good enough for the job. And actually, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be undeniably brilliant. So next time I get the job. Um, and I think that has served me very well. But yeah, so my whole take is, is that with the rise of women, amazing. But I don't think when one group rises, you have to push another group down. Um, and I, I, when I have taken over magazines, often what I have done is um, I've employed quite a lot of men actually over the years. And it's because when you have only one gender, so obviously I worked in... in um, magazine rooms where it was all women an amazing environment hugely nurturing but of course um the cliche of 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 sort of magazines being a little bit catty sometimes and, and maybe this is cliche but but I find when you put another gender in there when men sort of enter the room and work with women I used to find that something really interesting happened actually 
Um, so what am I trying to say to you? I'm trying to say to you that it's been an amazing 10 years, actually. Um, and long may it continue, because actually, of course, there's still a, a in magazines and the media, women are doing amazingly well, but it's still not, not, not the, the case in all industries. But I think, yeah, I think as any group rises, you just got to make sure that you bring, uh, I've always thought you've got to bring men along. You know, you can't, that's why I'm always very, I never use words like misogynistic. I just try not to, because I always think the best thing you can do is you just all get along together. And of course, getting along together, the mix, the mix is what makes things in truly interesting for me. You know, it reminded me of uh, many years ago, there was a amateur boxing club in the South Bronx in a very bad neighborhood. And they were, city was throwing them out of their building. And we were able to interview, intervene and enable these young kids who were all from the street to continue to train and learn boxing. And uh, one of the television networks here did a feature on it and said, listen, if there are a thousand kids, you know, in boxing, uh, you know, these kids are clean. They're not on drugs. They're not committing crimes. You know, take a thousand lawyers, a thousand, you know, editors, a thousand anything you're going to have more people turning up dirty than these young kids. So uh, I, I, I think, you know, what you're saying is, you, you know, as one rises, the other one doesn't have to fall. Right. Um, and in across the continuum of, you know, business and culture, there are good people and bad people. That's right. Um, and that's always been the case. So. Yeah, and, that, and that's it. I always try to look at it as an individual level. I, I you know, I think once you start going, judging people on their gender or ethnicity only or on any certain segment of their identity you start you you back people into a corner I mean it's it's so interesting for me now coming full circle to your earlier question which was um about being um the child of of of, of a Pakistani father and an English mother now interestingly the world only wants to talk to me about being Asian nobody is interested in in in, in me being half, half Caucasian and I always have to say to people I'm like I, I'm both and, and I'm equally proud and actually I'm also more than my ethnicity I'm I, I have this whole backstory so you've got to be really careful like that is why everything is on an individual basis yeah um, you know it's like management isn't it I used to think you one management staff for all but the older I get, it's like, look at the person in front of you asking for advice, lacking for guidance, and you got to shift your management style to, to kind of fit them. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a custom order world, not an a la carte world. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So um, let's talk about your book. Um, and I'd love to know where the idea came from to write the Discomfort Zone, How to Get What You Want by Living Fearlessly, clearly just from this conversation. I get the absence of fear. I get the willingness to be uncomfortable and, and to be first, to be disruptive. But what made you write the book? And what are some of the key takeaways as you think about it? It was only a couple of years ago that still come to mind today, two or three years after the book was published. Well, I wrote the book clearly from personal experience, which is my experience was that actually perhaps the magic lies when you are pushed into slightly uncomfortable situations. And I was at Cosmo 
when I wrote it. And of course, my life, when I when you go into a magazine, the content of that magazine becomes your life. So when I was at Women's Health, there was a wellness obsessive. And then at Cosmo, I was just obsessed with 20 something women. I mean, obsessed. And what I found was by being in their world, actually, it was women of late teens, early 20s. What I started to repeatedly see was about sort of seven years ago, there was this sort of cultural messaging um, about fragility and that, you know, don't do anything that scares you. If you're anxious, go and sort of hide yourself away in a safe space. And, and we saw it. Um, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, by the way, but it existed. Um, we started to see the proliferation of safe spaces on campuses and people being able, you know, people being able to remove themselves from lectures if they felt triggered. And by the way, there's full merit in that. But I did think that was the only conversation that was being had. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. That's all well and good. And I get it. But where's the other conversation, which is in case you're interested there's also a lot to be gained by confronting the things that you're most afraid of. And of course, when you confront the things you're most afraid of, uh, they don't stop being scary, but you become braver. And I thought that was a story worth telling. And there didn't seem to be any literature on it. It was all about self-care and, you know, protecting yourself. And I, I, I just felt very strongly that there is another way if you're interested. I guess it all goes back to everything I've said in this conversation. It's about the dialogue. There are multiple options for you. But at that point, I was only seeing one sort of narrative or instruction for young women. And, and it hadn't been my experience. So I thought, look, this is worth sharing. And not everybody will subscribe to it. But as it happens, actually, the, the book has been pretty successful. And, and a lot of young women did find, actually, that that they sort of unlock their potential when they force themselves into the things that they were most afraid of, because the reality is, and, and of course, this is what the book is about. The reality is, is that nothing is uncomfortable from beginning to end. I mean, it's, it's just not true. It's, you know, the narrative we tell ourselves, so we don't have to do it actually, but in not doing it, you sort of stand still. Um, the, the truth is, is there are just elements of discomfort within within anything. And if you can figure out what the what the small things are that are really stopping you from doing something and you can come up with a plan about how to get through them, then, you know, you're sailing in a way. So so that was what the book was about. And it's sort of a philosophy I use every day. I try to sort of enforce it onto my team without them knowing. But 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 the truth is, it's about knowing that you're probably stronger than you think you are and that human beings are are actually meant to carry a bit of a load you know we operate really well under it such a great such a great story and it, it, it this tells such a wonderful story about you going through this whole this whole conversation that's why i love doing this you move on you have had every important job in the industry in the uk moving from cosmo to l but you're still very young, Farah. Are there things when you, when you, well, 42 is very, very, very young, very young. Are there things that when you lay awake at night and you, you know, have your little business dreams, we have all kinds of dreams, but we'll stay with business dreams here that are things that you'd like to go out and do or accomplish or a different part of the world that you'd like to live in, work in you know, what can we, if we, if we were to look at a crystal ball 
and look 10 years from now, what do you think we might see? Well, it changes all the time. I mean, I always thought I wanted to be a journalist and and be an editor in New York. And actually, when those opportunities came my way, I said no, which made me realise that actually I'm done with travelling. I don't think I want to live abroad. Well, me and my husband would, I mean, whether this will ever happen after Brexit, but, you know, the dream is we would retire in France. But me working in a big, fast city, I mean, I know London is, but that's not sort of part of my dream anymore. I'm very happy. You know, I've lived in France. I've lived in Australia. Never got to New York in the end, and and I feel okay with that. Um, I don't, you know, I'm very happy where I am. Um, In terms of what I want to achieve, I mean, the thing is, I am really lucky because I'm doing what I think, of course, is the best job in the world, but I am really lucky in that I have a... um, a CEO who has allowed me to um, on the side to do things that I suppose really, really, really matter to me. So, you know, I've been on for the last three years, um, a social mobility commissioner. So we advise government on, on inequality in the country. Um, That was something, I mean, we did a lot of stuff on Cosmo about sort of inequality amongst young women, but I could only go so far with that on Cosmo. And actually being on the Social Mobility Commission, I'm allowed to do it at a much bigger level. Um, I joined the national, uh, the board of the National Theatre a few months ago. It's really important to me. I I lie awake in night, not thinking about what my business dreams are, but I do lie awake in night worrying about the next generation of creatives and whether people look at the creative industries and go, well, can I see a future in it for me? So um, I think I will always, I hope I will always work with with content. I mean, I hate the word content, but what I mean is, you know, things which excite people and get dialogues going. Um, But the truth is, I just don't know what it will look like. And look, will I ever be an editor again after L? I don't think I will. But then I said that after Women's Health, I wanted to go and be a, you know, run a Pilates studio. And then after Cosmo, um, I wanted to go and work for a tech company. And, and, and then, of course, Elle came along and I was like, well, I can't turn this down. So I think I've had a pretty good run of it, actually. And so I don't know where else I would want to go. So I do think, you know, whenever this ends, because, you, you know, people go, oh, well, it'll never end. Well, of course, it will end at some point, um, simply because I'll stop being as good as I was at the beginning. You know, I, I, I do think editors do, if they're running at full capacity, they do run out of ideas after a certain amount of time which was why I've never stayed anywhere too long I've never I don't like outstaying my welcome whether it's a dinner party or in a job um but I suppose I don't know is the answer um yeah you know what and I don't know is a great answer and I, I think always leave them wanting more is a great <laughs> way to live your life and knowing when to leave the room Uh, So this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for doing this. I enjoyed it immensely and hope that we didn't torture you too badly. No, always lovely to speak to you. Thanks, Matt.